If you're an author or plan to be one, get excited because this podcast is for you. Book Marketing Mentors is the only podcast dedicated to helping you successfully market and sell your book. If you're ready for empowering conversations with successful marketing mavens, then grab a coffee or tea and listen in to your host, international best-selling author, Susan Friedman. Welcome to Book Marketing Mentors, the weekly podcast where you learn proven strategies, tools, ideas, and tips from the masters. Every week, I introduce you to a marketing master who will share their expertise to help you market and sell more books. Before I introduce you to today's guest, I have something important to ask you. Do you want to find ways to bring your message to the world? Do you want to find the right audiences hungry for your information to drive your work and grow your visibility, recognition, and reputation as an expert author or entrepreneur? Do you want to find venues, events, and organizations for speaking gigs to share your message? If you're passionate about your message but struggle with sales, marketing, and promotion, and you're willing to work hard, as long as you have some guidance to make sure that you're working smarter, then we need to talk. Send me an email at info at bookmarketingmentors.com with, I'm interested in speaking in the subject, and we can set up a convenient time to chat more about this. Now let's get back to the show. Today, my special guest is a nationally recognized communications expert. Diane Ripstein is a veteran speaker, performer, consultant, and coach. Her executive and management clients sound as smart as they are and deliver winning communications and presentations to prospects and peers, the public and the press. And that's thanks to Diane's skills. She's delivered high-impact results to clients such as Fidelity, IBM, American Express, John Hancock, Office Depot, Microsoft, Liberty Mutual, and many more well-known brands. Combining insights and stories from 20 years of corporate sales with humorous theatrical flair to performing her award-winning one-woman off-Broadway show, Move on the cha-cha, she'll grab your attention and tickle your funny bone. She's been a long-time dear friend and National Speaker Association colleague. Diane, what an absolute pleasure it is to welcome you to the show, and thank you for being this week's guest expert and mentor. And thank you, Susan. What a wonderful opportunity to talk to your audience. So, Diane, as you know, our listeners are primarily nonfiction authors, and their book is really their main communication vehicle for their message. But let's talk about how they could transition from the message in the book to taking that message and speaking out loud on stages and training. Talk to us about how they could do that. Well, first of all, I would say how fabulous that your listeners already have a strong message. And clearly, if you have written a book and put that immense time and energy and thoughtfulness into developing a topic area, you're already smart about that topic area. And what I like to say is I help speakers sound as smart as they are. 
So our listeners today are already smart, already have a, a topic that they feel passionate about and clearly have delved into. And so the next step is, as you said, how do you take that knowledge and translate it into the verbal word? And I would say they already have taken that first step because they know what their message is. And then how you take that message and articulate it does become the second step. There's obviously a big gap in between the one and the other. And they've got this message. And now, I mean, I know, for instance, that when I share messages, I have a tendency to give more than I should at that particular time because it's just too much. So how do we know what's enough, um, you know, what's too much for an audience? Well, the good news is we have all been listeners. We have all been in audiences. And I know that you recognize, as do all your listeners today, they know how to recognize a speaker that just seems to be going on and on. One important tip to think about is keep it short. And I don't mean the whole presentation has to be short, but each idea, almost each sentence, can be shorter than you think. We tend to want to go on and on and add another phrase and then say something else, which leads to something else, which leads to something else. I call it wandering in the desert of extraneous verbiage. And that's very common because, of course, we have a lot to say. Perhaps one of the first techniques to think about is, how do I shorten my ideas? How do I take that message that I already have and break it up into more digestible chunks? If you think about it, as we read, we can always go back. If, if an idea seems uh, dense or rich or something that we want to uh, get a little bit more juice out of, we can go back on the page and read it again. When you're hearing a verbal presentation, obviously the words come out and then they disappear. And if you don't catch them, then it's on to the next. So the idea of shortening what you have to say is so that your audience can hear it more readily and more clearly. And you probably already know this, but our attention spans have gotten ever shorter and shorter. And that really comes into play when we're listening to speakers. We want to hear that information in almost condensed forms. That brings up a really good point. It's absolutely true, as you say. Our, our attention span has waned to such a, a small percentage. It's like scary. How do we keep people's attention, you know, while we're speaking? Well, here's a tip. I call it pyramid positioning. So picture a pyramid. It is obviously pointed at the top, very narrow, and then it gets broader, and the base is the bottom part of the pyramid, and it's the widest. In normal conversation, if you and I were just chatting, Susan, we might start at the beginning, the bottom of that pyramid, and eventually get to the point. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So here's the trick. When you're in presentation mode, you want to think about leading with the point. That very sharp point way at the top of the pyramid, you actually begin with that. And why is that a good thing to do? It's because you're signaling to your audience, here's the point, 
here is how I want you to listen to the rest of what I have to say. And you already give them almost a lens through which to hear, a filter through which to hear the rest of your words. In other words, you hook them right up front with the point, and then you can develop that point as you go down the pyramid and get broader in what you're talking about. And you may not have to go down that pyramid very far. You'd be surprised how quickly and readily a good point can be made and bingo, it's done. You may not need to talk a whole lot more about it. That's what I call pyramid positioning. I love that. And I can see that it's just a great picture of exactly how to do that. And I suppose then if you really wanted to go into depth in any one subject, that's when you would take that speech and turn it into a training program. Would I be correct with that? Oh, absolutely. I love that you said that because I do both. I am a speaker and I am very much also a trainer. So typically a training session is longer. You have people for more time. It's more conversational. And you have that ability to take your topic area, develop it, have exercises, be interactive, uh, you're coaching, you're developing a feeling within the room, you're building trust. There's a lot that goes on. And the speech is almost the frosting on that cake, if you will. So the training is taking all the ingredients, baking that cake. The speech is the frosting on top. And I love the idea of taking a topic area and being able to really expand it in the training room. It's also, I would say, less difficult for a novice speaker. There is less pressure. You can ask more questions. You can dive off the answers that people give you. And it's perhaps less of that sense of pressure that, boy, I have to have every word ready, sharp, clean, and clear if I'm giving a keynote speech, let's say. So it's a great idea to have both skills, but I think, in a sense, that training may be a better starting point. I was going to say, yes, it sounds as if it's an easier entree Mm -hmm. for somebody who doesn't feel as confident about getting up on a stage and as you say, just giving that speech. How about the whole idea of building confidence and let's say minimizing anxiety? Because you talk about pressure or speaking. Talk to us about ways in which we can overcome some of that. Absolutely. And I'm so glad you brought that up because, you know, everybody gets nervous. I work with a lot of senior executives, they are well-known, they are powerful people in and of themselves. And you know what? They get nervous too. It's part of the deal somehow. So my very first comment would be that you shouldn't be hard on yourself if you're feeling nervous and anxious because it is so normal. It is how we are wired. The first step would be to ease off on ourselves. I call it the inner game. In other words, you really can't present to others, sell others, convince others until you've done that internally. The inner game is working with your own courage muscle. It is helping yourself understand you're probably better than you think you are. 
And here are a couple of ways that you might consider doing that. I call the first one self-talk. Think about this, Susan. You and I both know that there's a lot of negative voices inside us being self-critical and judgmental and giving us a hard time. And, And writers, of course, are prone to this in a very big way. We've all written things and we think, oh my gosh, not nearly as good as I want it to be and I wish I were better, et cetera, et cetera. The first step is you have to take those negative voices and find some positives to combat them. The first positive is something as simple as affirmations. An affirmation is something you say to yourself. It's positive. It's in the present tense, even if you don't think it's true yet. And that's the key. I'd like to share a very simple affirmation that I developed for myself years and years and years ago. Three sentences. Very simple. I am who I am. Now, the reason that's so important is I think we all feel we have to be somebody different or somebody better when we begin this journey of being on a stage or at the front of a training room. Really, you don't. You can only be yourself, but you need to be your best self. So my first sentence always is, I am who I am. I can't be anybody else, nor should I want to be. I am good enough. The next sentence is, I know what I know. Now, again, I'm not saying I'm a world-class authority, but every one of your listeners is a content expert in their area of expertise. So just saying to yourself and grounding yourself in your expertise is very powerful. I know what I know. And the third sentence is, I'm very good at what I do. I can say that with total honesty and feel comfortable with it. Again, I don't have to say I'm the very best in North America or whatever it might be. It doesn't have to be hyperbole. It's just honest and true. And the key is that you believe it. So putting those three sentences together, I am who I am. I know what I know. I'm very good at what I do. And I will tell you and your listeners, of course, that I have said those three sentences to myself literally thousands and thousands of times, sometimes out loud, often quietly and privately in my head when I wake up in the middle of the night and I'm nervous about a gig that I have the next morning on my way to a presentation. Again, it's become almost a routine for me. And that's what an affirmation is. Another technique is what I call visualization. And I might suggest to your listeners Think of yourself when you are at your most relaxed, most peaceful. Where are you? Who's there? What's the setting? What's the scene? And again, writers do this so beautifully because they can add the detail, what you're seeing, what you're hearing, what you're sniffing, what's in the air. And you take that scene and you put yourself into that scene of ultimate relaxation and peacefulness. And That is another way to combat those negative voices, the nerves, the anxiety. So again, part of what I call the inner game. You've got to start there first. You've got to really deal with that, you know, the negative voices that say, oh, I'm not good enough. I'm not as good as so-and-so, et cetera. And we all face those voices. So your goal is to fight them back. I call it slaying the presentation dragon. This is a dragon and it's breathing fire. 
and trying to throw you off your game. Well, you've got to stand your ground and speak positively again to yourself first. I love those three questions. I am who I am. I know what I know. And I'm very good at what I do. Hey, I've said those three out loud. (laughs) I love it. Diane, how about being natural and authentic? I mean, it's something that's obviously very topical these days, authenticity, transparency. How can that come over in our speaking? I'm going to give you three ways to think about that. We want to be natural, we want to be authentic, feel comfortable within ourselves so our audience feels comfortable, well and good. But we do need to bring some context to that so you build a platform for yourself. And I would say the very first way to feel confident is to have what I call a blazingly clear objective. B-C-O, blazingly clear objective. In other words, what do you want to do that day with that audience or that group of people, what is the one thing you want to do? Now, often people will say, well, I want to talk about this, and then I want to talk about that, and I want to share the history of how I did this thing and that thing. That's fine, but I would counsel you to say, of all of those things, what's the number one most clear objective? This is why that's important. The clearer you are about what you really want to say and leave people with, the easier it is to talk about it and the easier it is for your audience to listen to you. So you become authentic simply because you're so clear and you're so focused on the one thing that you want to say. Even as I am clearly aware that you're going to say more than one thing, there is that one thing that is your blazingly clear objective. The second idea to think about is always to have a story, an anecdote, a piece of history, an example that you can speak about, again, in a very genuine way because it has happened to you or somebody you know. And that becomes the anecdote, which, as you probably already know, we tend to speak differently when we're sharing an anecdote or a part of a story. Our voice changes, our face changes. And again, that's another part of showing how authentic you are. And the third area to think about is you have to care. It seems obvious, I know, but, and I don't mean being glib. I mean really caring about your topic, about what you're there to give. And by the way, I love the phrase, we give a presentation, because I like to think of it in that way. It is a gift. You are giving something to your audience. When you care, when you think about this gift that you're giving, it helps take the onus off of yourself and you think more about the people listening. And they're there because they care and you have to match that caring and give them something that is meaningful to you. So three ways to think about how do I come across as authentic? Number one, be as clearly focused as you can on your blazingly clear objective. Number two, have a story or an anecdote that you can share in a little bit more of a conversational manner. And number three, care deeply about what you are trying to give to your audience. The whole idea of 
giving a presentation. I had never thought of it like that. It's beautiful because you absolutely, you are giving people a gift. And the more you think of it that way, I love it. Excellent. Our listeners love mistakes. I am sure there are just one or two little mistakes that people make when they're speaking or getting ready for speaking. Talk to us about mistakes. Okay. Well, you know, when nerves take over, we go too fast. It's as simple as that. The adrenaline is pumping. Nervousness makes our heart beat faster. And we tend to really pick up the pace. And I will tell you, when I am being introduced as a speaker, you know that moment, you're standing on the stage, the introducer is talking about you just as you did before we started our conversation today, Susan. And typically what happens is my heart starts racing because the nerves are just reaching kind of a peak moment. And I will tell you that I very deliberately slow down my breathing. I focus on my heartbeat. And I very deliberately try and slow it down because I know that I'm going to come out of the gate and, you know, just go a mile a minute. And I don't want to, but that's one of those mistakes that we tend to make. That's a big one. And you always know when somebody is nervous, when they are just almost like not stopping. They just keep talking, talking, that verbal diarrhea, and it's awful. Right. And, you know, often they're looking for the point. I mean, that's why they keep on talking, which goes back to if you know your point right up front, it helps. It helps with the nerves and it helps with making mistakes. Let me give you another example. And I want to do this by acknowledging that we all make mistakes. We misspeak. We say something wrong. It comes out wrong or we mix up our words. Of course we do because we're human and we're real, right? But here's the trick recovery. How do you recover? And the analogy that I love to use is uh, of figure skating. And I know that you're a fan of figure skating. So we've all seen skaters fall. And if we're seeing them fall, probably millions of people are because we're watching it on YouTube or on television. And what happens after they fall? Well, some skaters get up and zoom right on to their next mark They pick up the music, and you can tell they have left the fall behind them. Others get up, and you can just sense they're berating themselves. They're wobbly. They're worried about what didn't work. And I think the key is how do you take a mistake and let it be, yes, it was a mistake, and believe me, you're not going to be falling on your rear end in front of a million people, but yes, you've made a mistake. Just keep moving. If you don't let it, bother you, it won't bother the audience. The audience really is only bothered if they can see, wow, it kind of, they will notice that you as the speaker have lost your place, have gotten more nervous yourself, are looking worried versus, okay, made a mistake, let's move on, let's hit the next jump or the next step and just keep on going. That's brilliant. That's absolutely And you're right. Now that I think about it, when people do make mistakes, when they fall in skating, yeah, the ones who just get up and go and as if nothing happened, you know, uh, was just part of the, you know, the program. (laughs) Others fall to pieces. Yes. Yes. 
And you can see it and you can feel it. It's not just what you see, but you feel that sense of someone has fallen to pieces versus, okay, it's behind them, blew that one, let's move on. Let's prove how good I am with the next key jump or figure or whatever it might be. So that's what we're aiming for as speakers. Now, we don't always get it right. And it is like anything, a work in progress, iterative, the more you do it. And by the way, the more you flub, then the more ways you have of learning how to recover. Fabulous. So I know that our listeners are probably chomping at the bit to find out more about you, your services, how they can get a hold of you. So don't let's keep them waiting one second longer. Thank you. Thank you. I think the best way is just to go to my website, which is my name, Diane, D-I-A-N-E, Ripstein, R-I-P as in Peter, S-T-E-I-N as in Nancy, dianeripstein.com. I do coaching, I do training, I do speaking, I work one-on-one with people, and of course, I present to much larger groups all depending on what the need is and how people can best work with me. And I think if if folks uh, go to the website, you can uh, certainly sign up for my newsletter, which I send out every month. I know you're on that list, Susan, and we've had some great discussions about uh, the tips and techniques that I talk about. The newsletter is all about communications, how to be better at it, how to dive into it, how to learn more about being as smart as you are, and of course, sounding as smart as you are. So dianeripstein.com, right on the homepage, you can sign up for the newsletter. I would love to have you as one of my many readers and to share ideas with you. Beautiful. Yes, it's a beautiful website, by the way, folks. You need to go on to that and just look at, it's a great example of a very nice, clean website and it's fun as well so excellent i do try and make it fun i think that's so important because we are so hard on ourselves in this arena we're very hard on ourselves so i want to encourage your listeners allow yourselves to have fun with this it doesn't have to be terrifying it doesn't have to be nerve-wracking again you are smart you have content expertise you have deeply developed a topic area And maybe the world really wants to hear from you. Very much so. Well, we should hear more from you. And if you were to leave our listeners with a golden nugget, Diane, I mean, you've given us so much already. It's almost like I'm really squeezing harder for more. What would that be? My very favorite is to keep on breathing. And I know it sounds corny. Obviously, we all breathe all day long. But I would bet that you breathe shallowly. I don't mean you yourself, but all of us. We breathe more shallowly than we need to. So a deep, deep belly breath, whenever you can think about it, does wonders. Wonders for your voice, for your nerves, for your sense of yourself. Don't forget to just breathe deeply. And you can take a breath more often than you think you can. Take a breath. And what a wonderful note to finish off on, taking a nice, deep, relaxing breath. Thank you, Diane. You've been amazing as I knew you would be. And thank you all for taking time out of your precious day to listen to this interview. And I sincerely hope that it sparked some ideas 
you can use to sell more books. Here's wishing you much book marketing success. The time is now to take action and finally build your book selling empire. And the great news is that Susan is here to help you. Visit bookmarketingmentors.com and sign up for a free 15-minute book marketing strategy session with Susan. She'll help you discover your first steps to marketing and selling your book. Only those who take action are rewarded. So visit bookmarketingmentors.com and we'll see you again next week. Hi, it's Susan again with another secret buying motivator. Today, we're going to talk about the need to nurture. The need to nurture is another powerful motivator, especially for people who find themselves in caregiver roles. Understanding the need to nurture means positioning your products and services so that they appear the best and most attractive for an individual to fulfill a certain responsibility. With some individuals, the need to nurture is so strong it overrides basic self-interest. It's not unusual for a parent to prioritize their child's needs over their own, or a pet owner to buy gourmet food for their cat while they dine on ramen noodles. While the need to nurture certainly influences purchases of many necessities, if you care for someone, you want to make sure they have food, shelter and clothing. This nurturing need also drives customers to buy other, perhaps not as critically necessary things, such as toys, jewellery, plasma TVs. Many people buy these items for loved ones, just because they know or hope they will make the recipient happy. Hallmark's famous tagline sums up this sentiment very well. When you care enough, send the very best. Making someone happy is a nurturer's ultimate goal. If you can help them do that on a consistent basis, you've got a customer for life. The need to nurture is not tied to gender. Both men and women are driven by the need to take care of others. Socially, we're more likely to expect the need to nurture in women, but men carry that gene as well, so never make any assumptions. There are times that the need to nurture extends beyond immediate family and friends. A passion for the environment, human rights, the underprivileged, animals, or the community can easily fall into the need to nurture. Environmental consciousness is one of the most powerful and visible manifestations of the need to do well. Companies that position themselves as green with earth-friendly products, services, practices, and packaging appeal directly to the need to do good. An effective way to appeal to customers driven by the need to do good an effective way to appeal to customers driven by the need to do good is to offer them an opportunity to positively impact the world without fundamentally changing what they do in a day. For example, many people, especially women, are concerned about breast cancer. Kellogg's cereal introduced a number of cereals in special packaging with the announcement that a portion of the proceeds of the sales from these products would be used to help fund breast cancer research. 
Customers who were going to buy cereal anyway were given an added impetus, an opportunity to contribute to a cause they cared about. This drove many consumers to pick up Kellogg's products rather than any other type of cereal. Tune in next time for our sixth secret buying motivator, the need for self-improvement. And until we meet again, remember to keep exercising your marketing muscle. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.